everybody, and thank you for joining us today for our conversation with Alfier Christiansen, who is a sociologist and public health professor at the School of Public Health at the University of West Virginia. And I had the great honor of hearing him speak about the Iceland example at uh, in Alaska when I was invited to speak about the social determinants of health in Alaska uh, by my peers there. And he spoke very eloquently and very interestingly about the uh, example of Iceland and the work they've done uh, bringing upstream risk and protective factors work uh, to the youth and young people in that, um, in that country and the marvelous success that they've had. And so I thought it'd be great to invite him and have him speak to us today about uh, that example. So thank you so much, Alf Gear, for joining us and uh, making yourself available uh, hey. to us. Thank you for having me. And um, just wanted to lead off with a question for those of us, uh, for those in our audience who aren't familiar with uh, the situation in Iceland. Can you give uh, our audience members who may not be familiar with the story of what happened in Iceland an overview of the problem that the nation faced, how you addressed it, and the results that you saw? Sure. Um, the back of the story starts in the mid-90s or early 90s when Iceland found itself to be at the higher end of comparative substance use measures in Europe. We were, you know, third to fifth from the top in alcohol use, drunkenness, cannabis use, smoking, these sort of basic um, substance use measures that are compared across European countries in studies that are called um, European School Project on Alcohol and Drugs, which is a similar study as compared to monitoring the future here in the States. Uh, it's conducted every three to four years, and it's very helpful to see what's really happening in trends across the continent. At the time, we had been certainly using similar tactics in primary prevention as most places have done for the longest of time, and those are typically instructional programs that are run in schools. And the basic background, the basic premise of such instructional programs is that you can teach kids to shy away from drugs at the individual level. And the mantra and the belief is this notion of if we teach them, they will know, therefore they will act. The problem is that this approach doesn't work very well. And there's ample number of findings that show that it doesn't at the primary prevention level. It may well be um, uh, possible to use in different settings of particular types of problems. For example, you try to teach people with diabetes to make sure to use insulin adequately at any given time and so on, but that's a captive audience of a specific type. When it comes to primary prevention, we're trying to understand why do kids initiate drug use? Because it really is the initiation which is the problem. There's countless studies that show that the earlier they start, the more likely they are to escalate into serious problems. And there's countless studies that show that with every year you can delay the onset, you have really exponentially improved your chances of a healthy outcome up even decades later. So what we did back home in Iceland in the mid-90s is we decided to drastically change the course and look not only at the programs we were running, but very much at the systems that were occupying and responsible for those programs. And turns out that the systems were very similar to what they are in most other places. In other words, you have a prescription-type program 
that you run in a certain manner, usually with some kind of a manual at a given place and date and time over a period of time, often be weeks or even a few months. You assess somehow before and after. Sometimes there is no such evaluation. Sometimes it's very limited. Commonly, it's very limited. And then you say, hooray, we're done with the program. Let's get more funding to do the same program the next year. And this is a ball, sort of almost like a hamster wheel that runs rampant. And this is what we do not only in primary substance use prevention, this is how we tend to do health promotion lots of other ways. And attached to this way of doing things is obviously the nature of short-term funding, which everybody's fighting for and try to keep things alive, and the nature of evaluation. We tend to think that this is the way to do things with a research-based emphasis, and therefore we run in that. The problem is that at the core of the issue with drug use initiation among youth are certain variables that have very little to do with educational approaches or the suitability of educational approaches like this. Things like, where do they come from? What kind of family background do they come from? What kind of area have they been brought up in? What kind of school environment do they um, uh, develop in or grow up in? What kind of peers do they have? And so on. Turns out that if you look at the distribution of substance use initiation among kids, there are pockets of areas that disproportionately produce almost all the users. In other words, it's not randomly distributed in the population which kid is more likely to initiate. But the educational approach, the programmatic approach, assumes that everybody is susceptible in the same way. So in other words, it does basically disregards this notion of where you're from, what environment you come from, what school you go to, what opportunities there are in your social environment, what kind of peers you're subject to, and so on and so forth. But these are all massively important background variables that need to be worked with in order to, um, in order to possibly make any kind of systems change. So in Iceland, we had, first of all, we had people from sociology and criminology come to the table with the, the Reykjavik City Council, which is sort of far and away the largest municipality and often leads an effort that spills into the other municipality. And then the government decided to um, work with them. At the um, sort of core of the attention, why was this possible to do at this time, was both what the European ESPAD study showed in terms of our kids being different from the other European kids or at the top of, of, of the using uh, curve, and all, the other thing was uh, a number of high-profile media stories about drunken teenagers downtown and, and getting into trouble and so on and so forth. And an increased effort among researchers to actually work with practitioners and demonstrate in a sort of a simple format how um, substance use impacts lives of, and including the licit substances and the substances that they typically start using. So they decided to change the focus and start shying away from short-term programs, or what I often refer to in my arrogance as band-aid method. And they started focusing on potential of systems change. At the core of systems is the problem that researchers typically do not work with practitioners. And practitioners typically don't work with policy and policymakers work very seldom with researchers. In other words, you have three major groups 
that have massive affiliation with this issue, but they hardly ever communicate much with one another. And for this, there are many reasons. One of them is simply that in universities, the incentive system for researchers to climb the ladder from you know, adjuncts or instructors to assistant professors and all the way to full professors, they aren't really paid much to play along with practitioners. It's getting more common now, but it's still kind of uncommon and certainly was almost, well, very uncommon um, 25 years ago. At the core of the idea of getting those people to the table together is this notion that can we provide something, can we provide them with something that is actually helpful to everybody and creates this notion that we understand that we're all in the same boat. Everybody wants to move the needle in the same direction, but they're just because of systems differences, they're siloed into different domains, if you will. And um, the father of this method or the idea behind this method is called Dr. Thorolvur Thorolinson. This is not very easy to say, but we call him Thor. He has his PhD in sociology from the University of Iowa. He's retired now. He's a, he's a professor and readers now. But he's a sociologist, a micro-sociologist. And his idea that we started working with in the mid-90s and has since been developed further by me and other people into this thing we call the Icelandic prevention model is to work with rigorous, regular data that really identifies not only those outcomes, but risk and protective factors that are defined by the literature and um, to disseminate them in a certain system quickly and efficiently to those three entities in a very simple manner and very quickly after data collection. So in short, and excuse me, and finally, to, uh, to view the entity of implementation of the data findings as the school community. Because most schools are organized by geographical districts, which means that kids that attend the given school, they're also the kids that live around that school. Therefore, the school becomes a sort of, not only literally the hub of the community, but it, it is a unit of analysis that represents a certain area. So you collect data in schools with kids that attend that school, and therefore you have a way to acquire information about what's actually happening in that local community. Now, comparing that local community to other communities around that one school community is also a very powerful way of demonstrating the findings. And comparing those to some kind of larger entity is an even more powerful way of seeing where you stand compared to others. Doing this over a repeated period of time really gives you a sense for where do I stand compared to others? Where am I trending compared to others? And is there a way for me to possibly learn from the others that seem to be doing better than I am? In other words, if I'm a practitioner in community one and I get my findings, which show in very basic way line graphs and bar charts, how I am doing on, let's say, parental monitoring. How are we doing on core measures of parental monitoring? Well, we are relatively low compared to the, to the communities around us, and we are way lower than the state average. This gives me an incentive to say, hey, I got to reach out to my parents and show them, you see, guys, we're not doing very well here. This is a core aspect of prevention we got to do better. So building relationships with groups like parents, like leisure time workers and others in the local community, 
that draw attention to the findings on an annual basis is sort of how this is developed over time. When I came to the Icelandic Center for Social Research and Analysis, which has been the research arm of this work from uh, the start, none of this had been formally written up. It was all sort of experiential and practice-based learning that had just been developed by, really, by experience. So I started writing this up and publishing it in, you know, public health and health promotion sort of implementation type journals. And since then, we've, we've published, this was in the early 2000s, and since then, we have published an, an ample number of papers that really both assess this approach, that demonstrate the process, how this approach actually works, and the background knowledge concerning theory and applications and so on. But to cut a long story short, the difference between the Icelandic prevention model and other models is that the Icelandic model is a process tool to facilitate ongoing collaborations between people at the local and global level that have to do with kids. It's not a program. And for that, and because of that, it's often hard for people to take it sort of anecdotally and say, well, this doesn't work because it isn't evidence-based. But what does evidence-based actually mean? Evidence-based typically means that you have, well, like I said, a predetermined program. You have some kind of measure before and after. And if you find a significant difference, hooray, you believe that you have some kind of evidence-based. What we're simply saying, that's all fine and good. But think about this. If you use an evidence-based program to, let's say, work with parents or caregivers in a given area, what determines the need to work with these parents and not parents from some other school? Typically nothing. You don't really have anything to distinguish. Now, what I've learned, both from my work in Iceland and in multiple other countries over the years, is that, like I said in the beginning, most of the drug use initiation among youth is carried by disproportionate groups within your main area. It's not everybody that is subject to the same risks. If you have assessment that's conducted rigorously and regularly that can actually distinguish between those groups, then you have something to prioritize and base your decisions on implementing programs on something. So in other words, if I'm working in a county, we assess 10 schools, we see that they are um, low on, on, on parental collaboration, which is one of those measures that we have always emphasized. But actually, there are only three out of 10 schools that are really bad. The other ones are doing quite well. If I have data like this, I can actually prioritize and use my funding and my findings to draw attention to the three schools, do something else in the other seven schools. But this is typically not how things are done. So the Icelandic prevention model is a way to collaborate with usually municipalities, parental groups, school officials, leisure time workers, law enforcement agents, and others that really work locally with our kids. And at the core of it is this notion that you collect very straightforward data on certain risk and protective factors that we know are important from the literature and have been shown to be important for you know, a long time. And then we work consistently with those over time. We as researchers never tell people what to do. We just do the assessment. We come and give presentations about what we know may have worked. But it's very important that local practitioners and local policymakers that actually know what to do and know the feel of their environment, they are at the table to make those decisions. So it, it really is all built around collaboration. And in Iceland, since 
mid to late 90s, we've been working with municipalities that count for 80% plus of the entire population. And it's a kind of, a, it's a well-oiled machine now, but I mean, it wasn't like that for the first few years. And, and this is what we've been trying to do in other places uh, that have shown interest in this work. And you've seen some great results uh, in, in Iceland. Um, the alcohol and tobacco utilization numbers, can you share how those declined over time and how dramatic that was? Sure. Uh, so we started at the end of the 90s. And at the time, our comparative numbers for 10th graders, for example, were, were bad, uh, as I said in the beginning. As an example, um, in 1998, 42% of our 10th grade students had been drunk in the last month. That's almost one in two. So drunkenness among kids at this age, 14, 15, was very much normal. In uh, 2019, this ratio was 6%. We know from programmatic studies that no short-term program achieves this kind of change. This is a major paradigm shift in society. At the same time, 23% were, in, in 98, 23% were tobacco smokers, daily tobacco smokers. That ratio is 1% or 2% a day. 17% had used uh, marijuana or other cannabis substances, and that is 6 or 7% today. So, I mean, these are just major, major shifts and changes of a paradigm level in society. In other words, among 10th grade students, which is, in our case, is the highest school of compulsory education, our system is a little bit different. Drinking and smoking and drugging when you're in 10th grade is very abnormal today. That was basically how kids had fun. 25 years ago. So those, 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 you know, groups comparison between the societies is, is, is completely black and white. So what do those kids do now? Um, they, they don't get, they don't get drunk. They don't smoke. They don't do, uh, marijuana. They, it sounds like, you know, a parent's paradise. Uh, but, but how are they spending their time and, uh, what were the systematic changes that, Iceland facilitated to sort of create those new opportunities for youth? Yeah, good question. This is, of course, getting to the cusp of, you know, okay, so what happened? Um, we realized through both our own studies and others that there are certain key domains around the lives of adolescents that really are the strongest um, predictors of um, choices. Now, if we use educational approaches only, we are assuming that their choices are made irrespective of environment. We're basically saying, well, you know, you just have to make responsible choices. In other words, we're saying, if you're desperately poor, there's violence in your home, you have no opportunities for leisure time activities that are pro-social and character building, you just have to make good choices. We're basically saying, we're gonna remove the responsibility from us and we're going to put it on you as a 14-year-old. This is an insane proposition, if you ask me. The fundamental theoretical view of the isolating prevention model is that children are environmental products. You change the environment, you sustain the changes in the environment, and you will produce different individuals. The fact is that this holds in multiple different studies. So our major domains of um, emphasis are four around each individual, their parents and family, the peer group, the school environment, and leisure time, the time, free time outside of school. The individual is viewed to be a product of those major domains located at the school community level, that is in the neighborhood where they live or, or the area where they live. 
We know they spend 90% plus of their time confined within that area. So our work concerns strengthening the parental collaboration, strengthening protective factors at the parental and family level, driving down risk factors, doing the same for the peer effects, doing the same for the school factors, and doing the same for leisure time activities. So Iceland has emphasized an infrastructure that facilitates much more common parental and caregiver collaboration locally. We created a system where we have prevention or primary prevention personnel working within all school communities. Those are people that focus on primary prevention only. And this is very important because what I have learned not only from Iceland, but from multiple other countries, including the United States, is when you hire and acquire a prevention personnel to do some kind of prevention work locally, but you mesh them into primary, secondary, and tertiary level at the same time, they have a tendency to gravitate toward tertiary level because they're just trying to save lives. In other words, primary prevention always gets left behind. So in other words, we emphasized um, hiring and setting up a system of fully paid primary prevention infrastructure workers. Uh, and usually they were affiliated with the schools. Oftentimes they may have been guidance counselors or teachers or assistant principals or something like that. But they needed to have at least a 50% capacity to be focusing on primary prevention. In larger schools, in larger areas, those would be full-time positions. These individuals are the primary agents that connect parents at the local level. And they are responsible to maintain strong networks of parents to run regular meetings in the schools about substance use prevention in our community. Usually this individual is already well connected locally. We have emphasized strongly that this, is be, this will be somebody that has already worked with kids in the area. Usually it's a, a, either a semi-retired teacher or somebody that really works in leisure time work in the area. And that individual is responsible to build a network of parents. Now we all know how hard it is to get parents to the table in school communities. Schools use um, uh, communication routes like all calls and emails and take home mails and all this kind of thing. They run parental meetings and three people show up. What happens when you have a local individual that already is well connected locally is that the connection with the issue is massively raised. People feel much more, um, but they feel much a stronger relevance and stronger sense of responsibility if you have that kind of person. And obviously, it has taken several years to build this to be a well-oiled system. It wasn't like that in the beginning and that individual had to settle for maybe five parents to show up at a time, but that has always grown. And in every community, this is now very much the norm, just how we do things. So every year, the parents get together, they view the latest results. And not only do they view outcomes, they view their own work. They view their own sense of collaboration based on what the kids report in those annual surveys that we run. So that was one thing we did. Another thing that we did was that we collaborated very closely with the municipalities. In Iceland, the municipalities are in charge of the schools. So they basically fund the schools and they fund those positions. So instead of relying on short-term funding, that we couldn't maintain or weren't able to know whether would be maintained or not. We collaborated with the municipalities uh, and contracted with them directly. Now doing so with many municipalities at a time saves money, so it doesn't have to be that expensive for each one of them. 
at the core of this is the idea of doing what we call research-based or research-induced interventions. So it's not that we are, you know, doing research for the sake of research. This is all practice-based research for the sake of doing good practice. The second thing that we did in Iceland was to really consider how do our kids feel in school? You know, are they happy to go to school? Um, do they feel safe in school? Do they feel like there's something there for them? School is their work site. You know, what do we, the adults, do when we go to work and we're unhappy? We typically try to move things around or shuffle things around. If it doesn't work, we find a way to go away and just leave. Kids typically do not have that option. So if they're desperately unhappy in school, if they're being bullied or there are any kind of problems with their studies, that should be really attended to. So acquiring measures that are helpful for the schools to see what's happening with my kids in terms of happiness at school and enjoyment of studies and commitment to studies and so on was a big part of this. Thing. And thirdly, um, we really massively invested in organized leisure time programs for our kids. In other words, kids can participate in sports, in drama clubs, in scout clubs, in religious activities, and so on and so forth, at either a very low or no cost. And this is especially important for kids that never have or have not had this type of opportunity before, because we know that one of the principal problems with um, leisure time activities and generally having access to these kinds of activities is that they tend to be seasonal in nature is one thing. And the second thing is they tend to be expensive. Sometimes we have, you know, voucher systems or things like that. And then people have to demonstrate and re-demonstrate and re-re-demonstrate how poor they are. So we really make it hard for them to participate in that kind of system. Reykjavik City led the way and they started something called the Leisure Time Card. And the Leisure Time Card is really just a voucher. And actually today it's just an electric voucher that parents can use to sign their kids up for certain activities. It's very simple to use. You log in there, check whatever you want your kid to participate in, and bingo, they can go. And this is something like $150 or $200. Um, I may be wrong about this. It's a sizable amount. It's enough to cover participation. If I'm desperately poor, and this kind of program only covers half, I'm not going to get it, man. I mean, our kids are not going to have the opportunity. So they need to be accessible in that, in that, um, in that manner. Um, this is not, you know, the voucher, the, the leisure time card is not physical money. And it cannot be used for anything else. You just, you can use this opportunity to sign your kid up for things. And that's it. Since this system became electronic completely, which is, it's been for the most of the longest of time, the city of Reykjavik can also follow where is this opportunity being utilized well and where is it not being used. And if it's not being used, they can investigate what determines why are the utility of this opportunity so low in different areas. And we have the absolute same issues. I mean, Iceland is just a first world Western country, just like, uh, you know, the United States for the most part. So we have very similar issues at similar concerns. It's a smaller scale, but you know, the, the, the relationship between variables and these issues is very similar. So in this instance, for example, what kind of community is the community that is least likely to utilize those um, free leisure time vouchers? They're typically the poor immigrant areas, which no, is not surprising to anybody because they're not well connected with local culture and they have no idea how to run this kind of system. 
So then they will know, uh, the city of Reykjavik folks, we need some assistance in these areas to help people acquire this, this um, opportunity and or we may need different opportunities so that kids can sign up for things that actually is interesting. Over time, we've seen participation skyrocket. Um, almost all kids in Iceland participate in organized leisure time activities. Those need to be accredited and approved by a body at the municipal level. In other words, it can't be just anybody doing anything. Um, and usually it involves trained professionals or people with professional backgrounds in the given area. And this is in line with what the literature has shown for a long time, that people that really um, become strong role models, strongly attached to the kids when they partake in, in programs like this, and they usually have a very kind of pro-social and positive character building component for them. And it's really about the structure of these kinds of systems rather than the content. I mean, certainly the content is important, but just for example, it's vastly different to go to music school with your peers instructed by a responsible adult that really helps you develop skills and helps you learn from your peers compared to, for example, playing in a garage band with your friends. The, the structure really is the key difference. Having a responsible adult role model that becomes your supporter and friend is really the key difference here. And at the level of peers, our major interventions were just to break up this kind of long lasting culture of drinking and using. And that was done through various, um, both local and global entities. One of them, for example, was to set rules around outside hours that parents could follow. So the kids weren't hanging out late at night doing nothing. The other was to, at a given point in time over the year where it would be common for kids to be drinking or using something, to break those up and offer some alternative. Not just set a bunch of rules, but to really offer something instead. So as an example, this is just a, a simple example of something that was very successful. At the, at the end of 10th grade each year, at the end of the exams in 10th grade, there was this deep setting culture that kids would basically go downtown and get massively drunk. So the city center would be filled with thousands of 14 and 15 year olds drunk out of their minds downtown. The schools started or the municipalities started to work with the schools to offer party trips or party, you know, yeah, sort of trips, if you will, after the, um, uh, these exams that were conducted on the same day, usually in most schools, so instead of going straight home and getting your liquor or beer or whatever and going to your friends, they would bring their backpack and sleeping bag and jump on a bus and be driven outside of the city. They would stay in local scout huts with a couple of teachers and they would run some kind of fun program for them. No drinking. This only took a few years to completely smash this long tradition of massive public drunkenness by 14 and 15 year olds um, after exams. So at the core of it, just to sort of summarize, is that you have to have a team of prevention personnel that works locally. In our case, these come from the municipalities typically, and then they are bound together or sort of tied together by this network of primary prevention specialists. 
The researchers then do an annual data collection and disseminate the findings in comprehensive reports, but still very user-friendly reports, which concern those four major domains, parents and family, peer group, school environment, and leisure time, and outcomes. And the assumption is you strengthen the protective factors within the four domains at the local level, you drive down risk factors, and your outcomes will change over time. So we're not chasing individuals. We're trying to change the environment with the assumptions that the 10th graders this year are going to be different from the 10th graders last year, that are going to be different from the 10th graders the year before, and so on and so forth. And the idea is that over time, you will sustain a systems change in the environment that will lead to different outcomes. And that has been what we do today. We, I mean, nowadays, nobody questions the way these, these things operate. Nobody's going back to short-term six-week programs. Everybody just says, okay, what does the data this year say? Mm-hmm, we're doing well with this. We're doing not so good here. We got to emphasize that because this is not good. Okay, this measure at the municipal level is not too good. Now let's go down to the school community level. Which schools are actually driving the fact that this particular measure is not very good at the municipal level? Oh, actually it's only half the school. So let's focus on that within those five schools and do something else for the other five schools. And over time you get the parents involved, you get the leisure time system involved. It creates just a bubble where people act completely differently. So as a long answer to your questions, our kids are just busy. They're just doing other things than they were doing before, and they're much better supervised. So what do you think the challenges are uh, of translating this marvelous experiment to the United States? One of the things that is sort of can't help but notice as a public health professional in the United States right now is the great difficulty we're having convincing people to take pro-social steps with respect to wearing masks and socially distancing from each other. Uh, and there are elements uh, in this program, such as uh, an earlier curfew for youth and encouraging families to meet regularly and have dinner around the table. Uh, those clearly are, are going to have enormous public health benefits. Um, they would be very attractive to many public health professionals, but I can see them being very strongly resisted by parents across this country and this society. Um, how do, we, how do we translate it? How do we bring something along like this to, to a setting like this? Yeah, that's obviously a very good and pertinent question. So when we started, or I started this work with my colleagues in West Virginia, we really started uh, at the level of data collection. And we decided, okay, let's start by simply seeing, do our risk and protective factor assumptions and our processes of data collection, do they actually hold here in rural Appalachia. Turns out they did. In other words, even though in here, in, in, in rural Appalachia, there is a sense of exclusivity wherever I go. People tend to think their kids are different from other kids. That's not the case. Our risk and protective factors and their relationship with outcomes are just the same as they are in Iceland and other places. In fact, I've collected this type of data in over 25 countries, and those variable relationships are always the same. The prevalence may be different and certainly is different, both between local places and global places, but the relationships between those and outcomes, they are always the same. So that was encouraging. We now know that American kids in Appalachia don't have three heads or, um, or, or three ears or anything like that. They're just like other kids. The second thing we did was to figure out whether it would hold to acquire this type of data. Because in our case, because we're acquiring or collecting what we call practice-based data, 
we're not concerned with randomization. We're not concerned with um, generalizability in larger areas. We're concerned with getting everybody to answer in a local setting. That means each particular school. And we require 80% plus response rate from each school because that really gives you an opportunity to sell the findings to local practitioners. And local practitioners are not only professionals, they're also parents and families. So, you know, if I am there as an example, sitting in a town hall in my high school, listening to somebody talk about substance use prevention among the kids in my school, demonstrating those numbers for my school compared to the other schools in the area and some larger entity, that speaks to me. If I come to that kind of meeting and there's a researcher talking about Greek symbols and significance tests, about generalizable differences between kids in the county overall, I have no interest. In I am interested in my community. I'm interested in my son or daughter and their friends. That's all I care about. So having that kind of opportunity to acquire data like this is very important. Thankfully, when we started working and, and through the system here, superintendent's offices, we tend to be at the county level and then from the counties to the schools and then creating a system of communication within the schools, we found that actually people want to work with them. And when they know that this type of data is potentially helpful to them, they want to work with us even more. And since then, we have actually built an incentive system into this data collection. So we now pay the schools for participating. So in other words, we're not just going to them and saying, hey, can you collect a bunch of data for me for free? We're actually saying, if you would be able to work with us on this, I'll give you a report that really demonstrates the kids in this school compared to the kids in the rest of the county. And I'm going to pay you a little bit for it. That's vastly different. So we have been able to be very successful with that. Now, those things have been, have been very positive. The challenge has been on the other side. We haven't had the primary prevention personnel infrastructure that was created in Iceland. Secondly, Americans tend to be resistant to outside influences or outside mandates of any kind. So getting people to the table through data collection like this is a little challenging. This is why it's so important that you build the infrastructure first, then collect the data. We started the other way around and we realized that even though we had very important findings at the local level, we felt like we couldn't get anywhere locally because we weren't a part of the local community. So one of our requirements today is that we need to have a local infrastructure of people at the table before we start. This is one thing that has been important. Another thing, another hurdle that we have faced is that because of sort of the hierarchical layers in this sort of chain of command in the systems here, it's oftentimes a little unclear who is permitted to acquire the findings and who is willing or able to distribute the findings. Because in our view, for practice-based personnel, for practice-based reasons, we don't um, mandate anything around the distribution. Our um, definition is that the locals own their local findings. I'm not going to send them to all kinds of people if there is somebody central there that doesn't want that to be the case. So understanding and knowing the route of distribution has been a little challenging. The third thing that has been really, um, uh, or we have learned to understand is, is challenging, it has been challenging, is that parental and family um, um, organizations in schools are notoriously weak over here. Uh, we have more or less inactive 
parent-teacher organizations in high schools and very small and, 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 and uh, rarely active at the middle school. If we are going to really acquire attention at the local level, we parents and family members at the table, we tried all the tricks in the book ourselves, you know, offering food, offering raffle, offering daycare. I mean, you name it, people still wouldn't come. And one of the things I heard uh, from some of the practitioner colleagues that we worked with was that people are concerned that if you attend a drug use prevention meeting in your school, it may signify that there's a problem in your home. And this is so different from what I have experienced often in Europe, where people see and feel like the community is their responsibility. It's not just, it's not just about my kid. So this is a hurdle that we have now uh, been working through. And, and, but at the core of it is we need to do our homework first before we start all this data collection dissemination chain. And that means hiring local people to coordinate the work locally. Interestingly, after doing this for a little bit, we, um, I started working with the Prevention Research Center here at, the, at my university, West Virginia University. Just, just, just to outline this, clarify this, it's West Virginia University, not University of West Virginia. All right, anyway. <laughs> so, um, and we, we realized early on that where there are strong teams of locally concerned folks, we have a way better chance and opportunity to be successful. And this is what we're now doing through CDC, a five-year CDC funding in two counties here in West Virginia. We're also doing process evaluation. Not only are we tracking if outcomes change, we're also tracking, are they changing their ways of doing work? And what are they then doing? Because if I'm a local practitioner and I really want to fight people to get funding for the things that I believe are needed, I need local data. So if they have access to regular local data, they can argue for further funding from their elected officials or apply for it elsewhere and so on. And that actually is taking place now in those two counties. We only started last October, acquired one wave of data, and thankfully um, we see positive movement of things uh, already. So I think in order to get this moving, we have actually published a process papers that really describe this process from the start where you have to acquire a local team of people the way you need to do funding and so on and so forth. Um, and that's all been published that is in the public domain. People can access that. Um, th that's where I would start before I begin collecting any data and creating a momentum locally before I go further has really been uh, a key thing. We're now working in, in uh, Vermont, here in West Virginia. We have a small group beginning to work with us in uh, Kentucky, the next state south of here. We have interest in Boise and Idaho. And I mean, there's, there's lots of different places. And, and I mean, through this platform called Planet Youth, we are now working in 25 different countries, including Latin America and Australia and so on. So it's definitely getting attention. And what it seems to, it, it seems to do in terms of success is that it really facilitates a changed way of operation. You, 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 you remove yourself from this sort of, this 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 this, re, this requirement or 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 a belief that endless supply of short-term programs will help you change cultures. There's something that comes in between of the endless supply chain of short-term programs to change cultures. Because as far as I'm concerned, the culture in any local place is the problem. 
it's not that different individuals are making bad choices. It's they make those choices because they come from certain environments. So I, I, I'm a firm believer that this will work if um, we give it some time. And unfortunately, many funding lines don't allow you much time. They just say, well, you've got to make everything in the world in 18 months. And now I want my name attached to it so that you can highlight the fantastic funding that I provided you with. And then on you go and we got to do the next thing. And interestingly, even the funding system relies on things that typically are very short-term and short-lived. Because even though you do something really well, well, I'm not interested in funding something that's already been done. I want to fund something new and exciting. So everybody's doing something new and exciting, even though we have lots of ways out there that have proven successful. Great. So what's interesting here, it seems to me, um, in in listening to you, is uh, that one way to sort of overcome local resistance is by beginning uh, with local engagement and to sort of to, to, to rather than, as you said, at the beginning of this conversation, rather than looking at this as a program that gets imposed, that has certain elements on a community, you begin by building an infrastructure and then reaching out to the community and collecting data and then sharing with the community, here's the data, here's what the problems appear to to be, does that resonate with you? And then working with the community to identify solutions that they want to advance. And that that can potentially overcome that resistance of these are just these outsiders coming in trying to tell us how to raise our kids. And instead, it feels like this is a locally generated solution to a local problem uh, that really speaks to the cultural aspects that that our kids are are operating within. That's right. And I I believe that this notion of the local decision is really key because i mean nobody likes to be told what to do and the fact of the matter is universal programs they don't work universally they work in the setting where they were assessed they typically don't work everywhere in the same way because people differ cultures differ norms differ populations differ so i i would be much more inclined to go this route that you mentioned you start by building a solid team and acquire some interest in actually trying to change the systems bottom up and once you have a good group then you can start to connect the organizations including the schools leisure time programs law enforcement social workers and so on and so forth and after that um comes data collection dissemination and decision making and um I can share with you all the process-based papers that we have published on this, but we've really shown through a sort of a 10-step sequence that you can do this as a matter of repeatable 10 steps that you do on an annual basis. You sort of reassess where's your team standing, what do we need to do now, and in in there is also a a whole lot of, of potential interventions that have worked well in Iceland, but I mean, only some of them have been utilized um, throughout this time, others have been a one more of a kind of a one-time deal. And of course, there is an ample number of programs for different things you can choose from here. But doing so by first understanding where they are needed by what kind of people is probably much better fit for both your money and all the resources than to simply assume I'm going to run the same program for everybody every year. 
What about the long-term uh, sort of stickiness of this? You mentioned that you're working in Iceland with 14 and 15-year-olds, and we know young people continue to mature and boys mature, even take longer to mature than, than girls. Uh, and in many cases, young men are still sort of mat maturing their brain at the age of 22, 23, 24. Uh, do you find that the numbers um, and the behavioral changes that you've observed sort of in the macro data persist? Uh, does youth smoking sort of remain low uh, as kids move on into the tertiary education setting and into the sort of professional setting after that? And do you have confidence that these things uh, can sort of lead to a lifetime of change rather than just change in childhood? Yeah, very good question. <clears throat> so what we have found first was that because of the culture in Iceland where 10th grade was the highest year of compulsory education, there was a massive change that took place even immediately during the summer after 10th grade because culturally and in the adult cultural understanding, that's when kids become adults. So it's, it's this notion that, well, they're not really my problem anymore. We've kept them until 10th grade and so on. Still, what we found was that even though many of them begin partying after that, um, they are still doing it at a way lower level than they were before when we approved of this during grades 9 and 10. So in other words, even if we have only delayed the onset for an average of one to two years, we have still made exponential impact upward. We also see that when our, those kids get even older, they move up to 18, 19, 20, there is a much more chance or a greater chance now that they have chosen a sober lifestyle. And there's also a much greater chance that they are more responsible when they drink. The, on the other hand, the, the group that is really in trouble with way much or too much overuse is always getting smaller but there is a significant group. That is obviously the group that still will need tertiary care that did so in the first place and still needs that. But the overall change in the population has been overwhelmingly positive. We have a joke in our, in our um, realm of work stating that, you know, Iceland was the smallest country ever to make it to the World Cup finals in 2016. And obviously, the boys that played in that team are the boys that grew up with this system. They grew up in, in, in you know, free leisure time programs, indoor soccer halls all around the country that were open to them for their teams. And they were really kept, you know, within kind of a, 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 a preventive bubble um, throughout their teen years. So obviously, we have no idea whether there's a cause and effect between those two. But th this is sort of what we like to believe because you know, producing a team that makes it to the World Cup with 350,000 people. That's, that's pretty impressive. It is indeed. And with that, I think I um, want to thank you for your time. We're, we'll come to an end here, but this has been a, a, a marvelously fascinating conversation. And Alkir, um, thank you so much for joining us today and speaking about these experiences and sharing your wisdom and your knowledge. And I just want to make a plug to the rest of the audience about another thing that you said, which I think is really important. And that is for those states that are able to distribute money and to do funding, you really have to invest for the long term. These are not changes that are going to occur in one or two years' time. And funders who do two, three-year cycles of funding and then shift gears and go somewhere else are not going to see the kinds of changes and the successes that, that you've seen in Iceland. So uh, people have to take a longer view. I think that's another really important thing I've learned today from you. So thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Great. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to Health To Be Determined, a podcast brought to you by the National Association of Chronic Disease Directors. Please visit www.chronicdisease.org to listen to more podcasts like this one.